Well, friends, we, uh, we are turning our attention back to the Gospel of Mark. We're in the Gospel of Mark in chapter 3. This morning, I'd ask you to turn there. I'm going to read uh, verses 7 through 12, and I would ask you to please stand for the reading of God's Word as, if you're able to do so. And uh, when I finish reading it, I'm going to say, this is the Word of the Lord, and we're going to respond together. Thanks be to God. <clears throat> Mark chapter 3, verses 7 through 12. Jesus withdrew with his disciples to the sea, and a great crowd followed from Galilee and Judea and Jerusalem and Idumea and from beyond the Jordan and from around Tyre and Sidon. When the great crowd heard all that he was doing, they came to him, and he told his disciples to have a boat ready for him because of the crowd, lest they crush him, for he had healed many, so that all who had diseases pressed around him to touch him. And whenever the unclean spirits saw him, they fell down before him and cried out, You are the Son of God. And he strictly ordered them not to make him known. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. Well, friends, last, last well, two weeks ago, we began to consider this passage. <clears throat> And uh, we made it through verse 10 with the time that we had, and we considered uh, what it is to know the Lord Jesus as we considered his interaction with the crowd here. We didn't get to this last two verses, 11 and 12, about the demons being silenced, which really is, in some ways, the most significant part of this passage, and that's what we return to today. Um, Pastor Baxley, last week, he preached not knowing what we were preaching on. He, uh, in God's providence, preached on the, the topic of knowing God in his word as well, which complemented uh, what we were doing very well. And today we turn back to this passage with that same goal in mind that we might know God through his word. And even though these are only two verses and they are somewhat difficult verses to understand, Studying these verses, considering them carefully today, will help us to understand who Christ is and how it is that he makes himself known to us. Looking at these verses today, there is instruction for us about who Christ really is and about how it is that he makes himself known. Uh, because we only have two verses this week, uh, we get to dive in a little bit uh, more, a little more depth than normal maybe, we're going to ask some questions of this text, and we're going to address this uh, very significant issue in all four of the Gospels, but maybe especially in the Gospel of Mark, and that is what's sometimes called the messianic secret. Why does Jesus tell people not to talk about who he is? Why would he do that? Well, <clears throat> in order to understand that, let's, let's dive right in and ask the question, what exactly is going on here? Uh, for those of you that were here two weeks ago, the context, Jesus' ministry uh, has uh, stirred up significant controversy and opposition from the Pharisees and the leaders of the Jews. They're actively seeking to kill him now, and so he has withdrawn from uh, city life 
to the region around the Sea of Galilee. He's withdrawn into a more rural area um, to avoid uh, that building uh, antagonism. Uh, But in doing so, he has just drawn this massive crowd with him because, as we read, they, they know what he's been doing. They know the miracles he's been performing, healing people. They want to get close to him. In fact, so many people want to get close to him that they're in danger of crushing him. And so he tells his disciples to have a boat ready in case uh, the crowds get so, uh, so great and the pressure is so great that he's in physical danger. Now, in the midst of this, we come to verses 11 and 12. And whenever the unclean spirits saw him, they fell down before him and they cried out, You are the Son of God. Now, <clears throat> By unclean spirits, I think we're to understand Mark to be referring to people who are under the influence of evil demonic power. Uh, The scriptures are very clear that of those created beings uh, that God has put in this world that he has made, uh, there are angelic beings. There are those beings that are not human human with flesh and blood like us, but they are angels in heaven. And a large uh, group of those angels at some point in real history rebelled against the living God and fell from his presence and became his enemies and became demonic powers, uh, evil angelic forces that are undermining God's kingdom and fighting against him. The most well-known of those fallen angels is, of course, is, is the devil, Satan, Lucifer. Now, when Mark says the unclean spirits saw him, uh, I think he's referring probably to those people that are under the influence of these fallen angelic beings, individuals that are sometimes referred to in the scriptures as oppressed by demons or possessed by demons. And these evil spirits uh, influence these people to behave in certain ways. In this case, when they see the Lord Jesus, they fall down before him and they cry out, you are the Son of God. Now, you've got to imagine the scenario there. I mean, imagine the crowds, so great, so needy, they're pressing against the Lord Jesus. Huge crowds, and among these crowds, these people that are in need, surely there are a large number of folks. Uh, At this time in the Gospels, it seemed that they were all over the place, people whose needs were of some kind of demonic spiritual origin. And when they see the Lord Jesus, when they lay eyes on him, dramatically they fall down before him and they begin to cry out, you are the Son of God. Now what do they mean when they say that he is the Son of God. Well, that phrase, the Son of God, that used here in the Gospel of Mark, it is not just a general term used to describe somebody made by God. You know, we're all the little children of the Lord, that kind of thing. Not, not sons of God in that sense, but the very specific sense that uh, just a few minutes ago, uh, Pastor Carroll, when he read Psalm 2, he read about when the psalmist speaks of this anointed one, this one in particular, this king the Lord was going to exalt over his creation and the nations, and he was going to say, he did say, you are my son, today I have begotten you. 
there is a very specific Son of God referred to by this title in the Gospels. And this is, this is the Messiah. This is the Christ. This is the anointed King, the long uh, prophesied about one who would come and restore his people under his own rule. In fact, the, the Scriptures are very clear that this one who would come and shepherd God's people, he would be the son of David, but he would even be God himself that God would walk among his people, that the God that, that our, our, our brother, uh, Mr. Knopf, read about at the beginning of the service in Isaiah 40, that this is the one who's walking here and before whom the demons fall down and cry out, you are the Son of God. Now, as we consider this scenario, the question uh, arises, why are they doing this? Why are these evil spirits crying out, leading these people, driving these people who they are oppressing to cry out before the Lord, you are the Son of God. Well, I mean, it's true. Right? That's very clear from the, from the text as well. Jesus really is the Son of God that they're proclaiming him to be. And in verse 12, he confirms, the, the, the Scriptures tell us he strictly ordered them not to make him known. He didn't strictly order them not to lie about him, but not to make him known, because what they were saying about him really was the truth. But why were these enemies of God and these evil spirits declaring the truth about Jesus? Why would they do that? It wasn't to glorify him. And that's not on their agenda. It wasn't to worship him. It wasn't a declaration with faith. You know, when the apostle Peter in chapter 8 declares that he is the Messiah, the Son of God, Jesus tells Peter, remember what he tells him, a man's not revealed this to you, it's God that revealed this truth to you. Well, that's not the case with these demons. So what are they doing? Well, it's possible, uh, some commentators think, that, that their agenda is to distract and to antagonize. Right? You, uh, it would be an excellent way to distract you all today from the message that I'm preaching to you if somebody ran up here in the front of the church and fell down and started yelling. That would be pretty effective probably. That, that these demons are doing this work in order to prevent him from doing the gospel preaching that he'd come to do. Now, it, it's possible that's the case. I, I think it's probably unlikely that we're dealing with a uh, you know, coordinated demonic attack here. Um, it is odd that they would choose, of all things, to yell out the truth about him being the Son of God. And then I think it's also interesting that they fall down before him. When they cry out, they fall down, not in a posture of antagonism, but in a posture of submission when they see the Lord. I think it's more likely that these unclean spirits, these people oppressed and influenced by demons, these evil powers, they fall down before the Lord Jesus and they cry out about his true identity because being in his presence compels them to do so. That there is an involuntary quality about their declaring him to be who he really is. When they see him, and remember, friends, uh, they probably weren't seeing the exact same thing that the people standing there were seeing. They were not seeing just a carpenter from Galilee. 
they were not seeing just another, another man from Nazareth. But these demons knew him for who he really was. You remember, I've reminded you before as we've been going through Mark about the fact that this is not the first time that they had laid eyes on Jesus. Before they fell, they saw the glory of the pre-incarnate Christ in heaven. They know who the Son of God is. They know his power and his authority. And here when they see him for whom and through whom all things were made, they fall down before him and they cry out who he really is. No, it reminds me of, uh, of Revelation chapter 1. Turn to Revelation chapter 1 if you're, if you're quick with your fingers and you're flipping. Otherwise, you can just listen. <clears throat> In Revelation chapter 1, Starting with verse 10, the Apostle John says, I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day, and I heard behind me a, a loud voice like a trumpet. Down to verse 12, I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me, and on turning, I saw seven golden lampstands. And in the midst of the lampstands, one like a son of man, clothed with a long robe and with a golden sash around his chest. The hairs of his head were white like, wool, like white wool, like snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze refined in a furnace. And his voice was like the roar of many waters. In his right hand he held seven stars. From his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword. And his face was like the sun shining in full strength. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. Now when, when John sees Christ... There in this vision, John falls down before him as if he were dead. And I do not think that John did that in a calculated way. I don't think that John said, gosh, here I am standing in the presence of the risen Lord Jesus Christ. What would be an appropriate response for me? Hmm. You know what? I'm going to fall down and act like I'm dead. You know, I, I think John just fell down. Right? He was compelled to do so in the presence of the glory of Christ. You remember uh, Isaiah chapter 6, when Isaiah sees the Lord in his temple, and his, his glory fills the temple, and Isaiah cries out, Woe unto me, a man of unclean lips, for I've seen the Lord. Isaiah is compelled to cry out, Woe unto me, in the presence of God. And you remember, it's not just Isaiah there. Remember who else was there? There are, the, there are the seraphim, there are those angels, and, and they're covering their eyes, and they're covering their feet, and they're crying out, holy, holy, holy is the Lord. Even fallen angels in the presence of Christ have to call out, holy is the Lord. This is the Son of God. I think in that way, friends, as we see this passage, we, we do get a little bit of a glimpse of the future in a funny way. When the enemies of God lay eyes on him in his glory and they fall down before him and they declare who he really is. You remember what, uh, what the Spirit tells us in, in Philippians chapter 2 about the Lord Jesus. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name so that at the name of Jesus 
every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Every single knee will bow. Every single tongue confess that Jesus Christ is the Lord. Today, the gospel calls us to bow our knees before him and confess willingly he is the Lord. But there is a day coming when he comes in power and every being, even those demonic, angelic powers that have fought against him for all the ages, will bow the knee before him and say, this is the Lord. Even his enemies will confess that he is the Lord. That is the day that's coming for all of us. And it does beg the question for us now, that invitation of the gospel that I just mentioned, will we be among those who bow willingly? We will surely be among those who bow. Everybody will. Even, even the devil in hell. The question is, will we bow now and confess that Jesus Christ is Lord? Now, with that being said, as we consider why these demons were calling out the way that they were, if that is the case, if they are declaring the truth about him, and in some ways it is a glimpse of the future of what's to come when every knee bows and every tongue confesses, the question worth asking, I think, is, well, then why does the Lord silence them? Why does Jesus strictly order them not to make him known? I mean, if they're telling the truth, and it's an, it's an eschatological, you know, anticipatory picture there, why, why does he tell them to be quiet? Why does he strictly order them to silence? Well, there are a few answers to that question. Um, one we've already considered uh, previously in Mark chapter 1 is the issue of crowd control. You remember in Mark chapter 1, verse 46, um, well, in verse... Uh, 44, Jesus tells the leper who was cleansed not to uh, say anything to anybody about what happened except for the priests in the temple to give proof. But then verse 45, but he went out and began to talk freely about it and to spread the news so that Jesus could no longer openly enter a town but was out in desolate places and people were coming to him from every quarter. When the word about Jesus is broadcast everywhere, you know, the huge crowds come. And so that's part of the reason that Jesus is controlling the, the, the news about who he is and what he's doing. Now, I think at this point in Mark chapter 3, you might say the crowd control ship has already sailed. There are crowds pushing on him, uh, crowding together. There, there's such a mass of people there that he is literally in danger of being physically crushed by them. So I don't think that crowd control is on his mind at this point in his ministry. There are some deeper reasons uh, why he would silence these demons. And I think considering them uh, will help us to consider Christ and how he's known. The first reason that I want to uh, suggest to you is that this testimony about him being the Son of God, though it is true, it is coming from the wrong source. The witness of demons does not accomplish his purposes. He has come to make himself known and to be known. 
And he has come for his disciples to testify about who he is. But the purpose for which he would have them testify is not accomplished by these demons testifying about it. Now, you might think otherwise. Uh, you might expect the, the opposite to be true, uh, that, that people who are, are clearly under the influence of evil spiritual power, if they start shouting out, yes, the preacher's telling the truth, well, that actually would have a confirming quality about it, right? You might think that if an angel from heaven appeared in this room this morning and announced to this congregation, you ought to listen to what he has to say, it's true, that that would have, a, uh, that would have an, an, an encouraging effect on your listening and your receiving uh, what it is that I'm preaching to you about. But if we look carefully at the Gospels, and as we read the New Testament, we discover that true faith doesn't actually come from signs and wonders, does it? There are many, many people in the, the narratives of the Gospels who encounter the Lord Jesus and they see signs and wonders that he's doing, and yet those signs and wonders do not produce genuine faith in them. They are amazed by the signs and wonders. They are impressed by the work that he can do. The word spreads about the healer. The word spreads about the one who can feed the crowds. But real saving faith in who Christ really is is not produced by miraculous signs and wonders. That's the whole interaction he has with them in John chapter 6 after feeding the 5,000. And what he makes very plain to them in that parable with Lazarus and the rich man in Luke chapter 16. You remember he tells the story of the, the poor man who goes to the presence of God in heaven and the rich man who goes to hell. And the, the rich man in hell calls out to Abraham across the void. He says, I beg you, Father, send him Lazarus to my father's house. For I have five brothers so that he may warn them, lest they also come to this place of torment. But Abraham said, they have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. And he said, no, Father Abraham. If someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. And he said to him, if they don't hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. That's the truth. It is not miracles it is not wonderful works and impressive signs that bring about real faith where does faith come from and the scriptures tell us some of you know in romans chapter 10 faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of christ as impressive as demonic testimony might have been in human terms it did not accomplish the work of real faith being generated in people. Faith comes from hearing the word of Christ, hearing the gospel. And, and it is the same. It is the same today. Friends, this is why we as a church devote so much time and energy and resources to the word of God being taught and proclaimed. This is why we devote so much attention to the Bible, to knowing it and to making it known. Because this is the way that faith comes. Not through impressive works, no matter how impressive they might be. It seems counterintuitive, but that really is what the scriptures say. 
These people in that crowd that day, they did not need to hear demons giving impressive pronouncements about who Jesus is. They needed to hear the words from God himself and believe those words. And that's part of why he silences them. They're very much the wrong source. But there is, there is more to it than that. This testimony coming from these demons was coming at the wrong time. Not only was it coming from the wrong place, but it was at the wrong time. The time had not yet come in Jesus' earthly ministry for his identity to be proclaimed publicly in this fashion because he had not yet gone to the cross. And Jesus could not really be known apart from the cross, cannot be known apart from the cross. Now here we get into to the deep waters of Christology a little bit, the mystery of his identity and the very deliberate unfolding of it. You remember, Jesus Christ had come so that God might be known, and he'd come to make himself known so that God might be known. No one has seen God, but the only God at his right hand, he has made him known, John chapter one. Philip, if you've seen, the fa- if you've seen me, you've seen the Father, John chapter 14. This is eternal life, that they might know you, Father, and Christ whom they sent in John 17. Jesus had come so that they would know who he is, so that they might know God. And for that reason, misunderstanding who he is, not understanding fully who he is, was a big problem. And Jesus could not be known fully apart from the cross. Now, let me, let me try to explain what I'm saying like this. Some of you are, are, are aware uh, there, was a, there was a pervasive but incomplete expectation of the Messiah in Israel at this time. They were expecting the promised uh, anointed Christ to come, but they were expecting him to be a great military leader. They were expecting him uh, to conquer their oppressors, the Romans, the Herods, and be established as an earthly king in Jerusalem. They were thinking of him as a great general. And then as a human ruler like, like David or Solomon before him. In fact, in John chapter 6, you see them trying to take him against his will and make him king. And he has to withdraw from the crowd because that's what they think he is about. And in one sense, they're absolutely right. He is a great king. He is a ruler. He is a deliverer from the oppressor and the enemy. But they couldn't understand exactly who he is because he had not yet gone to the cross, and the cross was the key that unlocks who he really is, his full identity. He is the king, but he is far more than just the king of Jerusalem or the king of Israel. He is the king of kings. He is the Lord of lords, and not just over the earth, but over the heavens and the earth and everything in them. He is going to conquer his people's enemies, including the Romans, yes. The Roman Empire is going to fall and his kingdom is going to remain. But he's actually got an even greater work of conquering that he's going to do first. He is going to conquer the devil. He's going to conquer sin. He's going to conquer even death itself. He's going to conquer the grave. And in order to conquer the grave and sin and death and hell and the accuser of God's people, 
He has to face them. He has to engage them. He has to take on the guilt of his people. He has to step into our shoes. He has to step into our, our life, our, our human nature, and take on our sins, take on our condemnation. He has to take our place as a condemned criminal, take our place at the cross, even take our place in the grave. That's why he's come in the flesh. Before he can be exalted to his true place as king of kings and lord of lords, he has to suffer and die first. He must be humiliated before he is exalted. He has to die before he is raised so that the world over which he rules is not filled just with condemned enemies coerced into submission and damned souls, but rather redeemed sinners Adopted sons and daughters, forgiven brothers and sisters. And that true exaltation cannot be understood apart from that humiliation. He can't be known for who he really is if we're not looking at him through the cross. Here's the real reason why he silences the demons who are crying out about who he is at this point. They are telling the truth about him, but it's not time yet. And the crowds cannot understand yet who the Son of God really is. He is the Son of God. He is the King. But he is not on his way to a throne at this point, not directly. He's on his way to the cross first. He's not come to be lifted up and honored as King by these crowds. Not yet, not on this day. First, he has to be despised by these crowds. First, he has to be rejected by them, condemned as a criminal, executed by them. That is his mission. And at this point during his earthly mission, ironically, the testimony of these demons, though true, is counterproductive until this work of the cross is done. And so he silences them until he's done the work he's come to do, the work of redemption on the cross. It really is a wild scenario, you think about it. These fallen angelic powers are crying out about really who he really is, and he says, shh. I've got work to do first. Before these people can worship me, they've got to kill me. So keep your mouths shut. That's wild that he would do that. That a Savior would come and serve us like that and give himself like that. It's after the cross that he sends his disciples out to the nations to proclaim who he is publicly. It's after that that he sends his word to the far ends of the world that people might worship him. You know, the, the world and, and scholars for generations have misunderstood this and have thought that 12 servants Disciples with a fanciful imagination, after their teacher and rabbi was killed, they made up the fact that he was the Messiah and started to proclaim it to the nations 
and accidentally started one of the biggest religions in the world, right? That's the narrative that you hear sometimes. Well, it's not that at all. What we see in the scriptures is a Messiah who could not be understood for who he is until after he'd gone to the cross. He could not be understood until after he had given his life for sinners. And so he's chosen 12 servants to proclaim this truth after his death and his resurrection so that the truth like leaven and dough will spread around the whole world like a mustard seed that grows into a great plant just like he said that it would. Now, friends, I, I, I make this point to you because it's important that we understand that the same thing is true today. Jesus Christ cannot be truly known apart from his cross. He cannot be known simply as a guru or as a counselor or as a great religious figure. Either we know him as a savior who died for his people, or we do not know him at all. And if we do not know him at all, we do not know God. The cross is the key to understanding Jesus Christ, to knowing him, and in knowing him, knowing God. Here is how we know God. Jesus Christ died for sinners. To miss that is to miss absolutely everything. No matter how spiritual you are, or religious you are, or moral you are. To know God is to know Christ crucified. That's, again, that's why the banner's up here, that we preach Christ crucified, because that is the only way that God might be known. Paul did not just preach Christ, he preached, preached Christ crucified. Some of you know that I grew up in a church here in the Roanoke Valley. I grew up in the Roman Catholic Church and my family was very serious uh, about the form of religion, that there, there is a God, he is to be obeyed, you are to live in this certain particular way. And I knew lots and lots about religion as I was growing up. But I didn't know anything about God personally. I didn't know God because I did not understand the cross. And it was ironic because uh, the, the room that I was in every Sunday morning, there was a giant cross in there. I mean, the thing was like 20 feet tall. And there was a, it was not just a cross, it was a crucifix. There was a statue of a man hanging there, emaciated with blood pouring out of him. And it was wild, staring me in the face as a six-year-old, I mean, every week. But I did not get what that was about. It was later on in a different church. I went to a Baptist church where there was no giant cross hanging up but they were explaining the cross, explaining what it really is, explaining what was really happening there, explaining that there is the living God hanging in my place where I deserve to be. He who is the ruler of all heaven and earth would submit himself to be in my place of shame so that I might be forgiven. And all friends, when I understood that, I began to understand him. That was when I began to understand God and who he is and to know him. That is the key that turns the lock, the cross of Jesus Christ. God dying on the cross for sinners. So has that lock been, begun to turn for you? Has it been turned yet? In many ways, people try to know God. This is the way. This is how he reveals himself, 
Christ crucified? Have you understood what he's doing on that cross? Take a hold of that key if you have not. The truth that this is who God really is. He's not just a creator. He's not just a ruler and a judge. But he is a savior. And he willingly goes to hang on a bloody cross and die in the place of sinners. Dying in my place for me. Friends, if you've if you've never laid a hold of that, lay hold of it. It is the most important thing that you will ever do. And all oh, brothers and sisters, do not, don't loosen your grips on it. No matter how long you've been in Christ, do not cease to lay hold of Jesus Christ crucified. The cross is still the key to understanding and knowing God. And it will always be. The God who calls you to obey his commandments, he is the God who died for you. The God who calls you to forgive your neighbor and says you must forgive your neighbor. He is the one who died that you yourself might be forgiven. The God who calls you to give generously, even sacrificially. He is the God who gave his own life that we who were poor might become rich. The one who calls us to take up our cross and follow him is the one who carried the cross first. If we're going to know him and walk with him, we've got to see him through the lens of a cross. This is why we preach the gospel again and again and again, Sunday after Sunday, and will do so until Christ comes back. This is why we sing the songs about the blood over and over and over again. The cross must remain our focus and it will always be our focus. You remember in Revelation chapter 5. Between the throne and the four living creatures among the elders, John saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain. And the lamb went and took the scroll from the right hand of him who was seated on the throne. And when he'd taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb each holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song, saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and open its seals, for you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God. Worthy is the Lamb who was slain, is the refrain of the church forever. And it will be our focus in heaven. Our song with the angels and the elders and the whole church falling down before his feet. Worthy are you for you were slain and by your blood you ransomed people for God. It wasn't time for his real identity to be proclaimed on this day that we read about in Mark chapter 3. Surely not by demons. He hadn't gone to the cross yet. Oh, but it's time now. He has gone to the cross. He has died in the place of sinners. He has risen from the dead. And he has told us that his word, his identity be proclaimed, his good news be proclaimed to the ends of the earth. And I'm proclaiming it to you now. Will you believe it? It's not through miracles and signs and wonders that you'll be convinced. 
It is hearing the word. Will you receive it with faith? This, friends, is why we celebrate the table together. As he himself said, we, we will proclaim his death until he comes. That's what we're about to do here at the table. Proclaim the cross so that Christ might be known and the living God be known by us. This is eternal life, that we know God in Christ whom he sent. Let's, let's pray together now. Our Father in heaven, thank you for the kindness you have shown your people in giving us your word. And thank you for teaching us who you are. How could we have ever understood apart from the cross? How could we have ever been redeemed if you had not sent Christ to shed his blood? Thank you for doing so. We pray that you would help us to partake of this table together in faith that we might know you. And we pray this in Jesus' name, amen.